Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man that they call him the Hunter. That's his name. Here's my co-host from the left coast, whose bone structure is more striking to me than all his lack of empathy. Here's Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben Amin. So for this episode, we have a special guest. His last full-length record came out in 2020. It's called Bone Structure. I just referenced that. Uh, But he's been releasing some recent singles, including Minneapolis Cold and Any Angel Will Do. Please welcome to the podcast, Ron Pope. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Absolutely. It is our absolute pleasure to have you on here. And, uh, well, let's get to it. So premise of our podcast, fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each episode, I ask the all-important question. I'm going to start with Wayne. What T-shirt are you wearing? Uh, We've had lots of guests from the Austin area, and during one episode, I I ordered this T-shirt from Antone's, Ah. home of the blues. Yeah, this is what Wayne does during the interview portion of the episodes um while he's letting Sometimes. me run r- yeah run on with the uh, with the guest wayne is ordering t-shirts <laughs> that's that's what he did on that episode he texted me afterwards he's like so here's a picture of t-shirt i just ordered so <laughs> so uh i was um my last record uh, bone structure matt ross spang mixed it and he was saying when you're in the studio with John Prine, because he worked with John Prine, one of the really cool things is like everybody in the studio is always shopping for something on their phone, pretty much. Like at this, some people it's like guitars or pedals or basses, you know, whatever. Everybody's always looking at something. You know, uh, he said Jason Isbell is a sneakerhead, so he's ordering sneakers. You know, people like, you know, they have their thing. And John Prine was always shopping for Cadillacs. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. That's much cooler than, than buying guitar pedals. That's much cooler than shopping for T-shirts. For sure. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Ron? What T-shirt are you wearing? I am wearing, this is one that my wife got me as a gift. It is a Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion 1991-1992 tour T-shirt. Um, one of the anniversaries, uh, it, like the, the traditional gift is uh, some sort of medal. Uh, and <laughs> she was like, this will, yeah, okay, all right, sort of, sure. And so... Uh, Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, 91, 92, tour t-shirt. Love it. Yeah, big fan. Yep. Uh, and I was supposed to go on that, go to that tour with you, Wayne. I went on that tour twice. That I went. Uh, I got a cool shirt from the Metallica Guns N' Roses show, and then I got that same shirt from uh, the show in Tacoma. Yeah, stupid James getting, <laughs> getting lit up on fire. Uh, anyways, that's, yeah, James Hatfield... We had tickets to go to that Tacoma Dome concert, and it was right before I was supposed to go back to college. And then, of course, James got hurt. They they delayed the the tour, and so um, I was already you know thirteen hours away. Oof. So Wayne, I went. Wayne, Wayne still went. <laughs> Wayne still went. Yeah, I know, and he rubs it in. Slash came out and too. played with Motorhead. It was great. I hate, I hate you. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So uh, I am wearing a shirt that I've been wearing a lot lately. It's my uh, Neil Young Harvest t-shirt. So I love it. Uh, I probably wear it once a week. So here we go. I know, I know that y'all often have people that are like uh, 
friends of mine uh, on this podcast. And as a result, I was like going through my t-shirts and I was like, I can't wear like Caroline Spence or Lily Hyatt merch on here. Like I, then they're going to come on and they're going to find out that I'm wearing their t-shirts all the time. And then they're going to like not want to come over to my house anymore. So I, well, at least you, at least you have a Lily Hyatt t-shirt. That's, that's a point of contention on the, on the, uh, on the podcast. So I've seen her a couple times and she's, she hasn't had any XL t-shirts for sale. So Hmm. yeah. Ron's website is guilty of the same thing. There were a couple of cool shirts on there. Uh, but no XLs. We are out of almost everything. I don't know what's been, I guess because we haven't had a tour coming up in so long. You know, usually what happens is like we come home from tour and we have a bunch of merch, uh, you know, like from the end of the tour. And so we don't even like think about reordering. But I think it's like I've been home for over a year. It's uh, so that's, but I, uh, we do know about this. I know what's going on, and we're 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 ready to fix it. So it's it, we're not we're not trying to discriminate against anybody. If we don't have an extra small or a two XL, it's not because we're against you. It's because people bought them already, and we forgot to get more. That's all. Yeah, yeah. That was Wayne's way of saying, "Ron, take my money." Yeah. Well, I'm ready. Oh, I'm live in sweatpants. I was like, I'm oh. getting that. Ah, yeah. no XLs. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, um, Wayne and I both love Bone Structure. In fact, um, Wayne included one of your songs on our 2020 most listened to songs list. Ah. Wayne, remind remind us uh, what song that was. Take the Edge Off. Yeah. Great song. Ah. Great song. Yeah. Love that song. Thank you. With the great Emily Scott Robinson. Yes. Who she's, is on? She's on your label, correct? Uh, no, no, no. She, um, she did do... So... Blair, uh, who is my business partner and my manager yeah. and also my wife, Blair, uh, d- they're doing these uh, kind of, they call them marketing partnerships, where okay. artists, uh, we come in for the like the length of their release cycle, um, but we don't, you know, they're not like signed to the label, so they retain ownership of their recordings. And so, yeah, we got to work that, the first Emily Scott Robinson album, which was really cool. Um, but no, she's she's out there in the world. She's a free agent. Somebody go ahead and sign her. Yeah, she's great too. Yeah. So this week I listened to the podcast episode you did with Emily Kinney on my caffeine withdrawal. Ah. So you kind of already told your story of how you got into the industry and how you decided to go independent, how you created your own label, which I just kind of mentioned. So it's Brooklyn Basement Records. Did I say That's that right? It. Yep. Okay. So, so I will tell people, go check out that episode if you want to hear the whole history of Ron. It, it, was, uh, it was really great. Hoping to get Emily on, on the podcast soon as well. She's really, really great. And she's like a very engaged and interested. Uh, so she's a great uh, host, but she also is a great interview. I, I think she's really, she's cool. And she's like a renaissance woman. You know, she's making music and she's writing poetry and she's obviously an actress. So she's... Cool. I really liked doing that episode uh, of her podcast because my cousin, who used to be my guitar tech and okay. uh, tour manager and had, had different jobs for me over the years, my cousin just showed up in L.A. that morning to surprise me. Uh, he had retired from touring a few years before and gotten a, a grown-up job. And so he just surprised me, and we got to spend the day together. I was like, let's go do this interview together. And so, so I brought my cousin with me to go do the interview, and it was you know, we used to travel. You know, we traveled around the world together for years and years. So, uh, we were, ho- you know, hopped up on on too much cold brew and also very happy to see each other. So, I was very animated that morning, to say the least. 
Yeah, that was that was a fun episode. And yeah, yeah, your cousin even chimed in on a couple things where I think maybe your history was a little cloudy, and he yeah. jumped in and was like, "Oh no, 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 it was this." So, anyways, yeah. a lot of fun. Definitely go check out Emily's podcast. One thing that the episode didn't really focus on of that I read in your bio. So you were a baseball player. And you were on the Rutgers University baseball team, but you got injured, and that's kind of how did how did that turn into music career? I mean, I was always playing music. I was always in a band, writing songs, like from my early teens. Um, but I also was playing baseball. You know, I was playing sports, and and baseball became the thing. My you know, the bulk of my energies were pointed at because you can't really like half do it. You know, you have to kind of do it or not do it. Yeah. And so I was doing that, but while also being in a band and playing guitar and writing songs. And then when baseball ended, uh, I kind of, you know, I was used to the structure of, you know, this is what I do with all of my energy. And I just kind of pointed that into my music from there on out. And so, you know, it just went from, uh, a thing that I did to being like the thing that I did, basically. Yeah. What position did you play? Shortstop, very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 defensive portion or the offensive portion poorly. All of it. The whole all thing, of it. Just all okay. of it. Just terrible. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, did you at least hit above the Mendoza line? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, okay, I was well, fine. You know, it's just, uh, it's funny. It's like, this is something that I did. Like, I did it, you know, as a, as a child and until my late teens. And so it's like, it's been as long since I stopped playing as like my whole life before that, you know, that's, yeah. and so it's just like, it's funny that I still talk about it, you know, cause it's like so far removed from my life that it's like, Sometimes I forget that I did it. <laughs> right. You still a baseball fan? Yeah, yeah I'm a big Mets fan. Uh, it's okay. one of those things like, um, like, like being, like being a, a shorter man. Let's say it's like if you could choose, you wouldn't choose to be, you know, five foot four as a guy. Let's say you'd probably choose to be a little taller. You can live a great life, and that's what it's like to be a Mets fan. It's like nobody picks. Like people don't sign up to be a Mets fan. But you can have a, live a full life as one, even though there's going to be days where you're like, oh, I just wish that I could, you know, be be a Yankees fan this year or something. But you just, it's like in your blood. It's like a, you know, it's like a genetic thing, um, or like having big ears. It's really more like having big ears. Like, you know, I'm just living my life. I have these big ears. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not really holding me back. But uh, I would prefer if they were a little smaller. You know, that's what it's like to be a Mets fan most years. We're so I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Wayne is still out there in Washington. I've been a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan. Mm. That's even worse than being a New York Mets fan. Mm. Because at least the Mets have... Yeah, we don't even have 1986. Right. Yeah. You can at least go, well, in my lifetime, there was, you know, Mookie, Mookie Wilson and uh, Ray Knight. And we won a World Series. Mm-hmm. And, you, and the Mets have been to the World Series since then. So Yeah. In 2015, in Game 5 of the World Series, I'm at City Field with my father and my brother. My dad, when the lead gets blown, he gets up, he goes to the bathroom. And I was like, 
it's the ninth inning. What do you mean you're going to the bathroom? He's like, I have to go to the bathroom. And he gets up very calmly and he walks and he goes to the bathroom and he comes back. And I was like, have you been crying? And he was like, maybe. <laughs> it was an emotional night, guys. It was an emotional night. So, yeah, but, yeah, you know, it's his, his grandfather, um, right when the Mets started up in 62, he, he had been waiting for NL baseball to come back to New York after the Dodgers left. So when the Mets came, 62, he becomes a fan. They're the worst team in the history of baseball that year. They have the worst record ever in any yeah. regular season. And it's, uh, you know, it's... It's mostly been uphill since then, you know. Like we're, we're working our way. It's not. It's not downhill. That was. The, you can't get worse than the worst season ever. So we're. You know. We're going like this. We're getting better. Yeah. Well, they got to contend with the Braves this year. Braves are going to be really good. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. That's why they play the games. You know. That's right. That's right. Um, when you guys, when you guys say Tacoma, how many people go? Whoa, Tacoma. <laughs> No, no one. None. No one does that. No one. No. You guys know what it is, though. Uh, other than a really stinky place. Oh no! Like Tommy Lee in the cage upside down with the drums. There's like a viral video of, I mean, or a very popular video online of Tommy Lee in the the you know he has like the drum roller coaster and he he goes upside down and he yells like Whoa Tacoma! I'm, okay. Oh, okay. You guys know. You guys must have missed that one. Look it up. Woe Tacoma. You're okay. Th- th- that's my gift. Not a crew fan. I'm gonna defer that over to Wayne. You should uh, go ahead. Be. How do I hang up? Not a crew fan. <laughs> <laughs> Motley. This is the thing. Let me. Uh, let's go. Let's before we talk about anything else. Let's talk about Motley Crew for one minute. Here's the thing. Okay. The reason, like, if you look at Motley Crew through this lens, okay. L.A. punk is happening. All this minimalist, shirt ripped up, held together with safety pins, crappy songs that nobody cares about nonsense is happening around them. And what they decide to do is absolutely be themselves and do this thing that they love and put on a show as if they're in an arena, even in the clubs. And it's just about fun. It's not about the the content of the music. They're just making they're making it a, f- a party. They're, they're hosting a party, and the point of the thing is escapism, whereas all of this other music is about how bad the world is at that time. Right. And then they become the, like, the most popular band in the world for a period of time. So popular, in fact, that if you show up on the Sunset Strip in the right pair of pants with your hair done the right way, you could get a record deal. Like That's how significant the, the contribution of that band was. And now I understand a l- there's a lot of negative about them, but I, I think about them like in that light. I'm like, these are guys who absolutely chose to do something that no one was doing and followed that all the way to the top. And that is very infrequent that something like that happens in, in popular music where you you say, I'm going to be myself, and then it makes you like a world beater. It takes you all the way to the top of the mountain. Like almost everything else that gets that far is derivative in some way, and I just don't think they are, and that's what's very fascinating about them. But I get why people don't like them. Oh, you're preaching to the choir. I've seen Molly Crew more than I've seen any other band. <laughs> oh, such a show, man. I mean, obviously, it's like seeing uh, Van Halen like later on. It's like, you know even when they got Diamond Dave back, it's like, that guy's not, you know, he's, he stayed in great shape, God bless him, but he's not like, uh, you know, Kung Fu David Lee Roth of, of 40 years ago. No, that's that, that's golden era for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I was dancing with my baby to Panama this morning, by the way. Mm. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. All right. Um, 
All right, switching gears. I don't know how to segue from Motley Crue to the questions <laughs> I've got for you. <laughs> so I mentioned that you're already, you've already released a couple singles from your website. You indicated that uh, every two weeks until July 22nd of 2021, a song's going to be released. So you're lab- you, you labeled this project as The Builder. So I'm assuming this is all building up to new record, correct? No. Uh, (laughs) No. So what happened was, uh, in short order here, we, so I was on a break. Uh, We we had done a U.S. tour um, leading up to the release of Bone Structure. Um, And then we were home for a little while. Uh, We went to New York. We did some press. We came back to Nashville. And then immediately we had a tornado, um, like a Monday going into a Tuesday. We had a tornado in the nighttime. And that was like the 3rd of March. And then Bone Structure came out the 6th. So I stopped doing, you know, all the stuff you have to do when a record comes out. I was basically like, I will do none of these things. If you need me, I'll be outside. I've got like a broom over one shoulder and I'm carrying a chainsaw. And, you know, I'm out with my friends, like trying to clean up the neighborhood. And, you know, we we were not just working in my own neighborhood. You know, this is... This was a big, big deal. This destroyed everything in its path. It was not like it just touched down for a moment and, and disappeared. It was, right. you know, so we really, we were doing that for a few, you know, probably, I guess, uh, two weeks or so, roughly. And um, and then the, you know, the, the quarantine stuff started happening. And so at the beginning of the quarantine, one of my friends was like, you know, I've been playing online, just acoustic into my computer, you know, on social media. You should do that. Uh, you know, it, people have really enjoyed it. It's been like a nice distraction for my fans. And I was like, all right, sure. So uh, I signed on, you know, like uh, I did Facebook Live. We did Instagram. Um, and we were do, and we called these shows live and in sweatpants because I'm home in my pajamas. You know, I'm like walking around in my slippers in my house. And just, you know, it was like not, you know, it was very off the cuff. I was just playing. And then I... I thought, all right, well, I'm doing, I started doing a few of them a week. And then I was like, well, why don't I try to see if I can do like no repeats? So I did a bunch of shows in a row where I didn't repeat any songs and it, like maybe did a hundred of my songs or something like that where I didn't repeat a single one. So we, you know, we got into this groove and the fans were, you know, participating. And I kind of realized as time went on that we were, and we were doing this, that uh, people were really like the people in our community were taking something from these shows. It was like a nice thing. They had something to look forward to and they were very engaged as a result. And so I, you know, Blair and I started talking and we were like, well, why don't we finish some of these recordings that we have that like we didn't get to, or we didn't get right for the album, you know, like, or we didn't think, you know, need that still need a harmony, still need a horn part, you know, whatever. Yeah. I didn't like the mix, you know, let's go back and, um, and we'll just start releasing songs because, It'll give people something to look forward to. And so it was really about, like, the name The Builder. It's about, like, building a bridge between us and the members of, the, you know, the community that surrounds my music and between all of them. Because in addition, you know, to your, like, as a, as a fan, your relationship with the artist and the music, you know, a big part of being a fan of music, I think it's also being a member of the community. You go to the shows and you're a part of, you know, the relationship that you have with all of these other people in the audience, like in addition to your relationship with the music and your relationship with the artist. And so that's what The the Builder is about. And so we started releasing songs in July of of last year. And yeah, we're releasing something every other week. Um, And it's been really cool. And then at the end of it, 
I don't know what's going to happen, honestly. I'm still, you know, that's that's a, a number of months from now. And so for now, I'm just, you know, it's just given me a way to continuously interact with the people in my audience and, and give them something to look forward to and, uh, you know, something to connect us all to each other. And that's, yeah, that's, so that's it. Those are the bridges we're building. It's not necessarily something building towards the next album. I love it. So th- these aren't considered like B-sides or demos. They're just, they are what they are. Yeah, no, because uh, some of them are um, like, uh, like as a, for instance, um, some of them are just songs that like we decided it's like, saw so Bone Structure, I recorded it for about two years. In the middle of the process, this crazy thing happened. I'll tell you very quickly, but it was like we were in England and I was flying back from a gig, and then right after the car dropped me off where we were staying, uh, the guy got attacked by, like on my street, he got attacked by two masked men. And so he you know, was able to get away, and he was frantic. He thought that these people were trying to kidnap me. And so he was freaking out. And, and I was like, why, I'm, what? Like, I'm not Beyonce. No, nobody's trying to snatch me, dude. And I thought he was trying to run some kind of scam. Like, I didn't understand what was happening because yeah. it was all very incongruous and confusing. And then I looked out the window and the car that he described these men jumping out of was now parked directly in front of my house where I was staying. So I was like, oh God, like what, what is happening? And it, it turned out that, you know, the police came, they talked to us, they, you know, they, they calmed us down and they said, it's probably a, you know, just a robbery. They saw, you know, a black van with the you know, taxi tags coming from the airport. They assumed there was somebody in it to rob, you know, the, yeah. the, the cops were, you know, they, they made us feel a lot better, but it was, ter- you know, for a few hours, I'm like, I'm there with my wife and my, my, my daughter was like maybe eight months old and it was really scary. And so we'd been recording bone structure for maybe like a year and a few months at that point. And I decided immediately once I kind of came back to my senses, I was like, you know, it's, I started thinking about how fragile life is and how, you know, short, you know, a, a time we all have on this earth. And I was like, if I died today, my daughter wouldn't know me. And so I decided that I would write songs where I was either speaking about my own experience and telling a story that I thought she could use, uh, or, uh, you know, t- like telling her about events from my own life that I thought had some kind of moral, like either speaking about being her father and how that's affected me or, you know, things that have happened in my own life that I thought she might find value in the story. And so we basically just started again. So I had a, almost a full album worth of material that just, I didn't, it no longer fit the narrative. And so um, much of that I had like any angel will do as a, for instance, that uh, is is one of these songs, and I love that song, and I love. We worked on it forever. It's a we. There's um. Uh, I, I'm not allowed to curse, so I can't say the title of the, oh, of the you song. Can't, you can, you can. There's a well. There's that eel song. It's called "It's a Mother Effort." Right. Yep. Um, and yep. so it's this beautiful, you know, this delicate arrangement, beautiful, beautiful orchestral arrangement. And so we went out and found the person who, who did that beautiful arrangement and we worked with them and we, you know, we, we built this, you know, it was like, so as an example, like any angel will do, I maybe spent more time and money on that recording than any other recording on bone structure. Um, so it's certainly not a, you know, it's not like a throwaway. It's just, it didn't fit the album anymore. Yeah. They send one for me. 
And so, so I've got a lot of stuff like that. Like I just, in the last handful of years, I've been constantly working. So I had a ton of things. Um, and then like in the midst of it, I did write, like I recorded Joni Mitchell's River where I just cut my, like my, I had somebody cut those guitar parts uh, and then I cut a vocal uh, on top of it. And that, you know, like, so some of it was like, you know, postal service, uh, you know, remote recording and sure. stuff because yeah. we couldn't be in the rooms with each other. Um, so some of it I did as we went, but a lot of it was, yeah, some of this stuff that I, you know, that like when we were making the, the Ron Pope and the Nighthawks album, we also did, we went through this period where we were doing these, a particular sort of arrangement that I really, really loved, but then we didn't make the album with any of those songs on it. It was like the pedal steel forward, upright bass, like the Von Gray sisters who are, the Von Gray, Von Gray is a band and they're, they're a bunch of sisters. They have beautiful harmonies. So it's like very rootsy, you know, like a lot of banjos and mandolins and stuff. And we just didn't use any of that on the album because um, sonically it just didn't go with some of the more kind of like aggressive kind of stuff that the band was doing. And so I just have like almost... I, I don't, like at least an EP, maybe a full length album's worth of, of that material too, that is part of what I'm including here. So yes, yeah, so I don't know. I just have, Amazing. I just keep, I'm always working and then I'm to the great chagrin of my, my manager label head wife. Uh, I'm constantly like, okay, now I know I've spent all this money and all this time and all this energy, but what if I did something completely different right now? And she's like, uh, Okay. <laughs> it's a you know that's a, the one of the i would say probably most annoying things about working with me is how regularly i'm like what if we put down this thing i have been working on for a very long time and then i just completely do something else um but yeah, yeah. but i i think that that comes through i mean i was re-listening to bone structure over the weekend and i think you know i i've mentioned this a million times on on the podcast wayne of how to me as a listener of of an album in in full the sequencing and kind of telling the whole story instead of just telling a whole bunch of singles um really is important to me and i and i always felt like bone structure from the time that i listened to it the first time you know in in march of of 2020 was that there is a sequence to it there is a that it does tell the a story i i can totally see you know and hearing you talking about all of these songs that you've recorded and it's like well didn't fit didn't mm -hmm. fit into into the, the the album that i was envisioning so and sometimes also it's like uh we go into the studio with an idea like uh, for example on the work album when we went in to make work my favorite of the of the like the songs walking into the studio was a song called Good Life. I was like okay. absolutely in love with it. I was so excited to do it. And then we got in the studio and I could not get it right. I couldn't figure out how to arrange it. This is like one of the one of the biggest challenges of producing yourself. It's like when you run out of ideas and you look over your shoulder to ask the other person and then there's nobody there, like it's just you go and sit in that chair. Um right. That's, you know, I, I kind of just reached a, like a, a wall where I couldn't figure out how to do it. And so that ended up um, as part of like the extended collection of songs from that album, uh, because it took me like another six months to figure out how to make the recording sound like something that I liked. Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. It's just like, it's not easy to 
to get the recordings just right sometimes. Is it is it the control aspect that you don't want to you don't want to find a producer in those situations where you're like I'm I'm right at the precipice of figuring this out but I I need a second voice. You know, I haven't used a producer um on an album since the very first album that we did with the district in okay. 2003 um 2003 going into 2004 we recorded that um so so i was 20 years old at that point um yeah. and that was the last time that we used a producer um and honestly um i think it's because i never want to be in a position ever again where i say this is what i think we should do without question and somebody else says absolutely not like nope i'm paying so i'm right um yeah. and that's like for me uh, and I think that there are certain people, um, like there are producers that, uh, uh, like, own, like leave very delicate footprints and there are producers that are like, this is what it sounds like. It, like, you know, they'll do one thing and, you know, I, I know, um, uh, I know a, a, mu- a, a person, I won't, I won't say his name, uh, and I won't say what record he was working on, but, uh, a famous session musician who was working with a band in the nineties, um, and I, and I won't say who this is either, actually, because I don't want anybody to get mad at me. So a famous session musician working with a famous band, they, and they have a giant producer. And it's their first album. It's a big deal. Um, and the producer comes in the first day, and he gives everybody a pep talk. And uh, he's like, all right, I'll see you guys. And then he leaves. And he, like, plays tennis or golf or whatever. And so he's, like, off, you know, playing tennis and golf. He called on the phone a few times while they were making the record, but he didn't come back until the end. And so he was only there at the very beginning and the very end, but he hired all the people that were in the room and he like shaped the energy, you know, kind of. And he was, uh, it's like his style of production was such that like, he wasn't like gonna be in the room, you know, uh, micromanaging, you know, it's not like um, somebody that's in everything. I was like, you know, that's like, that's one extreme obviously uh and then you know there and obviously there's people like you know like a phil specter that's going to you know control every single piece and element and wants to you know co-write the songs and he's poking in at all angles and you know workshopping every facet of the arrangement and you know and there's like you know there's a lot of space in the middle i've just never like like i imagine the arrangements as i go it's like part of my songwriting process by and large and so um you know, on this the next collection of songs that I have been working up over the last year, I'm going to go back to co-producing with Paul Hammer. And Paul is Paul's one of my best friends, first of all. He's been my friend for for like 20 years at this point. And uh but he's been, you know, my musical partner on so many things. He was in the in the district when when I was in a band, he was in the band. And right. he's he's played on almost all of my albums. He's been in my touring band like any song of mine that I have played live, he has played at some point. Um, he's like, you know, he just knows my music very intimately. And when it seemed like we may never get the vaccine, we were like, okay, this is what we'll do. Like, we'll go lock ourselves and our families in a house together. Um, and we'll just do the record alone because we ne- we, de- we didn't know when we would be safe to go back into a studio with everyone. Um, and so that's, that's what we plan to do. So like, we're going to you know, we're going to work together. I, it's not that I don't have collaborators. It's just that like the idea yeah. of someone saying no to me 
like when I, when I, if I get to a point where I'm like, absolutely, this is what we should do. That's that for me is like the, uh, I like, I don't, I don't need that. Like, that's not, I just have been making records for too long. I like, like it gives me a stomach ache just thinking about that. Basically. <laughs> Sorry. I brought it up. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I don't like it. Mm-mm. All right. Um, so I texted my brother a few days ago and I said to him, I said, so my guest this week is probably going to get a history lesson on Tenino Washington. Do you, do you know Tenino Washington? No. Okay, so in your song "Practice What I Preach," uh-huh. you have you have lyrics that include, "Don't you take no wooden nickels? In fact, don't get paid I cha- in change. Just remember who you are, no matter what road that you take." Do you know the origin of wooden nickels and wooden uh, I mean- money? No, I mean I know what I know what it means, but I don't know where it comes from. So lay it on me. All right. So, so my brother teaches high school in Tenino, Washington. My mom lives in Tenino, Washington. So during the Great Depression, and Wayne, you probably know this, being up there in Tacoma, after the failure of the only bank in town in Tenino during during the Great Depression, the Chamber of Commerce teamed up with the newspaper there and they essentially printed up their own money and it was wooden money and that there there that's where you get wooden nickels go figure huh interesting all right well now i know about that history lesson for you (laughs) oh that's funny Anyways, I, I thought that that was cool, and and shout out to Tonino Washington because it they're pretty dank small, so th- this is probably the first mention that they've ever had in a podcast. <laughs> Maybe not. All right. I feel like I don't, I don't want to say all of them, but like seventy five percent of the podcasts that talk about serial killers take place in Washington State for some reason. I don't know if you guys know about this, but that's there's a lot of serial killer activity in Washington State in the 1970s and 80s, it seems like. like just based on my podcasts. There, there was Ted, Ted Bundy went to school with my best friend in high school, his mom. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. And, um, she, and she said that he was um, a super nice guy and everybody liked him. Yeah, that's 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 why that one's so scary. That mm-hmm. one, you know, because there's certain there's certain ones where you you're like, oh, that I can see how you know that guy, you know, he sees he's scary. I'm just he just starts talking, and you're like, ooh, right. Ted, Ted Bundy, it's like you're like, this guy, he's pretty articulate. I would like, hmm, he's got a nice head of hair. Like what? This guy, you know. <laughs> Yeah, a little scary. Yeah. And then Green River Killer. Oh, yeah, that guy. 
that yeah. was that was that was a big deal. But yeah. it, I mean, it's cra- it's crazy. Like um, the um, uh, what is the one that I've been listening to a lot? Crime junkies. Yeah, they're every time they okay. you know something happens in, in Washington or Oregon, they're like, oh, not again. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. Well, I just finished watching um, season one of Dirty John on mm-hmm. Netflix, mm-hmm. and um, as soon as I turned it on, and we were talking about you know this this really evil dude, I'm like, he probably grew up in Washington, and I was so <laughs> relieved to find out that he grew up in Ohio and not Washington. So that was mm. that was that was good. Um, all right, anything else? Anything else we want to talk about on Ron's music before we jump to the record? He chose Wayne. Anything? Uh, well, I got a chance to listen to obviously listen to Bone Structure again, but I hadn't listened to Work before, and I really enjoyed that, uh, particularly the title track, which has a really cool like Nebraska that demo feel to it. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, we and that's... partners and partner in crime. I love that one too. That has kind of a Springsteen feel also, but. Uh, in a in a different way. I love both those. Those were the highlights for me. Thank you. Yep. Uh, work. We're all playing together in the same room, uh, like pretty close together. And so in mixing it, it was like sort of infuriating. Obviously, you know, because there's just there's everything is bleeding into everything. Bleeding. Yeah. Um, but um, it you know it, yeah it captured the like the the delicateness of it. I mean that's you know that's the story of me. Of me growing up, my I had a teacher who really did tell my mother um, that if she didn't send me to trade school, I would probably end up in prison uh, because all the boys that she had ever taught that were like me ended up in prison. And um, and my mother said a bunch of words you can't say on podcasts to this woman, <laughs> and uh, you know didn't send me to trade school. And but here I am, I learned to trade, you know. So that's great. Um, oh, last thing. I love Minneapolis cold. I already mentioned that. I love Lydia Luce already. Oh, she's so good. She is so, so good. And yeah, we, we like that one. We imagined a few different ways. Like we tried it very, very, very sparse and delicate. And, uh, and then it, you know, the way that you hear it now with the strings and my slide guitar, I was like, instead of like, playing slide guitar and playing you know like melodies and licks what if i just played dinosaur sounds and so it just felt like the most like evocative of the emotion that i that i feel when i sing this song and this you know the story of this you know uh from my life uh i was just like yeah i kind of wanted to feel like you know like 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 a screaming or something like not not like a a delicate instrument playing melodies and so yeah. Uh, that that's always that's always a you know a fun and you know because that's an inexact science when you're like you know the target is very is very big when you're like let's try to make this sound very emotional it's like you go back and forth between like you know some of the time you're like oh no I really did it and other times you're like is this just a bunch of noises now like is this is this okay or is this Yankee Hotel Foxtrot like what are we doing here.
good. I and I love Lydia's last record as well. Oh, she's the best. She's so good. She's such a good singer. She's such a good player. She writes such beautiful songs. She's also a delightful person. She came in the studio and it was just like somebody turned on all the lights in the room. She's like very, her energy is very positive and she's uh, she's like really, she's a good egg. I like her a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Wayne, her song occasionally is probably going to make my end of year list. Play that a lot. It's a good song. All right. Um, Ron, tell us what record you chose to revisit for this episode. All right. So I chose Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign album. All right. So based off of listening to your music for years, Uh I did not expect a blues record coming from you. (laughs) So I grew up, um, first of all, like when I imagined myself, uh, the most... Uh, like the first thing that I think of when I think of myself as a musician is that I am a guitar player. Like before uh, I think of myself as a songwriter or a singer or anything else, I think of myself as a guitar player. So that's part one of this, I would say. Uh, Part two is I really like much of what is distilled into my guitar playing that goes into my songs. You can... Like, it's largely me doing Steve Cropper bits. It's like pretty specific Cropper-isms. And a lot of them happen on this record. Um, and I'll kind of tell you about them as we go through the songs. But, um, you know, there's really like... Like, it's, when I was a kid, at some point I was playing something like Little Wing, but not playing Little Wing. Uh, somebody was like, oh, you're doing that Cropper stuff. And I was like, what is Cropper? And they were like, what is Cropper? And I was like... Uh, yeah, like, what do you mean? Like, you know, I, I like, I thought they meant like it had something to do with the phrasing. They're like, you know, like Steve Cropper. And I was like, okay, tell me who, like, what is that? And then they were like, oh, it's this, and it's the, you know, Soul Man, and you know, all of these, all, you know, Hold On, I'm Coming, and, and, and all this, you know, incredible, all the Otis Redding stuff, all this stuff that, you know, you, you love. And I was like, yeah. oh, you know, and I was very, I was very, like, I don't know how old I was. I was very young, like maybe, I don't know, 13 or so, you know, something like that. Like, so, uh, it was all like music that I loved, but I didn't know uh, about the people that had made it yet. Um, and so, uh, so that's really an important part of this. First of all, for me, this, this album is, uh, you know, you've got like Albert King leading up to this point, first of all, had never done anything that any, like really resonated on a, on a, any, you know, real scale, you know, like he yeah. was not popular uh, in a big way, uh, you know, kind of at all. Um, and he had, you know, moved around and he, you know, he moves to Memphis and, you know, signs to stacks. And he's not like, he's not like a kid. He's like in his middle forties doing this, you know, this is, this is the, you know, the late sixties, like they finished this record and put it out in 67. And so like, he's like 45 years old or something at this point. He's, you know, and, and I guess like for me, um, like uh, Bruce Springsteen talks about this, like how Bruce embodies something that John Landau, his manager, like that he always wanted to be to some degree. And for me, uh, like, and the, like he's like his rock and roll fantasy. And for me, some of that is in Albert King, like Albert King, you know, first of all, um, he wasn't like, like when I was a kid and learning about music, he wasn't like BB King where he would show up places and, and, you know, smile. Like Albert King died when I was like 
nine or 10 years old. And so mm-hmm. Albert King wasn't there and he'd been sick for, uh, you know, a, a few years. Like, so he wasn't like uh, the, a big public figure in the way that like B.B. King obviously lived to uh, live much longer and participated in things. He was like a, a living being to me. And Albert King was like a, like a, like a myth. He was like Achilles or something. He's, you know, it's even like, how tall is Albert King? And some people say he's six foot four and some people say he's six foot seven and he's 250 pounds and he's 300 pounds. He's like, he's like a myth, you know, he's, um, and, and I had the benefit also of, you know, all these people who influenced my playing, they already, you know, they were a generation older than me or, or, or more. And so Clapton, Stevie Ray, Hendrix, all these guys who stole from Albert King, like directly, um, you know, I was already, I was being influenced by those guys. So it felt very, this felt very natural to me. I don't know. And so, uh, this record is important to me, first of all, because when I put it on for the first time, um, I was like, I got to learn how to play every note in this. And so I learned to play all of his parts first, like all the the central lead guitar parts. So I learned those immediately, like I learned them in a, in a sitting. And that's the coolest part about this music is it is deceptively simple. And that is what makes it so hard. Like you could take the heaviest jazz, you know, jazz school kids, you know, take a bunch of guys that are, you know, like 21, 22 guys, girls, players, the best players you can find in your jazz school, their senior year of college, take them, put them together and say, play this music. And they would play this record like garbage because this is hard. Like it's a specific set of skills to do this. I mean, and you've got, I mean, first of all, you've got Booker T and the MGs and the Memphis horns. So that's like, the best, the best thing that you can have, you know, like it's, it's either Booker T and the MGs plus the Memphis horns or the Swampers plus the Memphis horns. You know, it's like, that's it. That's as good as a, as a band playing music for recordings can sound, but it's like, there's no tricks in this music, you know, like a lot of times like Steve Cropper is, you know, uh, like kind of, uh, playing along in rhythm, with uh, like with and off of the the rhythmic piano parts or he's uh doubling the bass line you know it's like really straightforward stuff but it's like it's like james brown's music it's like a lot of james brown the the guitar playing and the horn parts especially it's like you hear that music and young people who like are really chopsy musicians hear it and go oh that's that's easy it's like this is this is deceptively like i've been playing this music my whole life and it's never sounded just like this, you know? It's like, literally, I've been playing this music for 25 years or something. Like, you know, as, yeah. uh, like, you know, like before I could grow sideburns, I could play these songs. And I could, you know, it's just like, there's, uh, there's a lot of magic in this record. And, and this is an interesting thing for me. It's like, people think of me as a songwriter. Like, I, 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 people come to me for, for songs and for lyrics. And I don't like most of the songs on this album, actually. I love this album because of the vibe and the energy and the arrangements and, and a lot of that. Like, I think there are actually very few, like, great songs on this album, uh, in, you know, for me. And mostly it's about, like, how the record sounds, how the playing is. And, 
and like where he is in his life. You know, this is somebody who was up against it. Like he had, he had been trying to make it as a musician for a long, long time. He had tried a lot of things. He had played. You know, he's also like this is a a, a great record about like um, it's a space, the intersection of so many things in music. Like he had played. Albert King had played drums with Jimmy Reed. He had played with yeah. Ike Turner. You know, played had Ike Turner playing on his recordings and stuff. So this is a guy who like. You know, you think of him as a blues musician, you know, and I think it's like pretty reductive, you know, because it's like he played, you know, he was there at the beginnings of, of rock and roll. He played with all sorts of people and did all sorts of things. Later on, he's making funk like this is it's I think it's like uh, to say that Albert King is a blues musician is like, I don't know, like uh, an oversimplification, you know, because he's. He's so much. Um, he's so many things, and he was so many places. And I love the idea that it's Albert King at Stax with, you know, like Isaac Hayes plays on this record. You know, like it's yep. it's it, like Dave Porter's writing songs. Like it's it's this is everything. It's every every good thing about American music. Like, you know, it's just as much like. Uh, you know, tied to like Aretha or Sam and Dave as it is tied to Ike Turner and, and Chuck Berry and, and, you know, all these things that like make American music uh, so special. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's why this record is, is a lot of things. And there's a lot of what I love about American music as a, as an arranger, as a producer. Um, but yeah, maybe the, the, as a songwriter, this is not the one that I pick for songs. I, like I picked this because I just, I love, I love the, like, I love the way it makes me feel. And like the, that like excitement that I felt the first time that I sat and listened to the whole album and like then sat and learned all the songs. Like I still feel like I put this on when I went running this morning and listened to it. And it's still like, it, it, it makes you feel something inside that, you know, most records don't. Yeah. Yeah, you touched on a lot of, a lot of the history, of of this. So, um, I want to I want to come back to a couple of the items. First, um, Albert King's not even his real name, so that's Albert Nelson. He decided to go by Albert King because he did want to try and be associated at some point with BB King. Did you know that he told people like for for a very long time that they were blood brothers like they were yes. like re- actually related that they they had the same father? Correct. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Um the second thing was, you know, he you you mentioned that he played drums with Jimmy Reed. Yeah. Um he recorded a record while he was there in Gary, Indiana playing with with Jimmy. Um didn't didn't sell, so he moved back to Arkansas where he grew up. Um, from there, a couple years later, he then goes to 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 be a part of the St. Louis scene, which you you know you talked about with with um, joining joining uh, Ike Turner. Did did he play in Ike Turner's band? Ike Turner played on some of his recordings in this period. Okay, that's what it was. Ike played piano on them. Right. So is it safe to say that like the two best things that happened to Albert came during this period because number one, he th- then records with Stax, who in the 60s were, you know, they definitely had some pull. And then second, he teams up with Booker T mm-hmm. and records with them and the Memphis Horns, which again, 
had a little bit of notoriety. So, I mean, well, first of all, I would say this is so. This is this record comes out in 1967, and so. Yep. You got to remember, until the end of 1967, Otis is still alive. And so while, you know, Motown is Hitsville, you know, and Motown is making music that's crossing over and it's like beloved by uh, people of, of, of uh, all races in America. It's like transcended uh, the race music, you know, that, 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 yeah. that, 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 that's what they're calling the charts at that point. You know, it's like it transcends that and it becomes po- the popular music of America, essentially. But, you know, so Motown is Hitsville, Stax is Soulsville, you know, and they're like Otis is making recordings there that are not crossing over in the you know it's not the temptations it's not you know number one right. hits that that every every white teenager in america is is getting but it is there's a cachet to it there's a you know the, he is making records that are resonating and they're a big deal in the in the black community and so one of the things that they were able to do by having booker t and the mgs and the memphis horns like having that stacks sound on the on this on these recordings is they were able to make this music cooler and they were you know like they they were you know they these are like the parts of this record that are that are good like that are really good the the more energetic sounding recordings um you know that's like what i think made this record work so well uh for for people it's like not um like down tempo sad you know it's like you know, born under a bad sign is like got a drive to it that uh, you know you don't expect with the the subject matter. You know, uh, the song. I mean, that, yeah. you know, and that's like, I think having Booker T in the room, having Cropper in the room, like having Al in the room, like, you know, like when when Al Jackson and Duck Dunn are are like, you know, just leaning back and and like it's. It's disgusting. The grooves in this, the grooves on these recordings are are filthy. You know, this is yeah. this is grown up music, and it feels sexy. It's seductive. It's powerful, and like that's not necessarily Albert King. It's like you know uh, uh, Jeff Buckley. Like Jeff Buckley's grace is like some part Jeff Buckley's gifts and ability, certainly. But a big part of what makes it work is that Andy Wallace was in the room saying, no, stop, yes, fine, no. You know, like having, having someone with a clear vision uh, sonically that they're gonna paint the whole, the whole record with, uh, in, this, in this setting, I mean, that's what makes this, in my mind. It's like Albert King's artistry is incredible, but he was this good for, for a long time before this. Like it's, it's not that he didn't have the ability to do this. It's that it's framed in the context of like, it's at stacks, it's, it's B- Booker T playing piano, it's, you know, it's Cropper, it's, it's, it's Duck, it, it, you know, it's it, all these guys like it, Wayne and it, like it's the whole thing. It's, it's like a very, yeah. It's a it's a cool place to be making music, uh, and that's why the record works. Like they did, they did a really good job of like this is Albert King does stacks, and you know Absolutely. it's it, it's not just like you know Albert King does Albert King. It's like Albert King does stacks, and so it it, it bridges the gap between that like uh, R and B soul space and the, the kind of the blues thing that is happening, you know, the, they're bl- largely blues tunes, but they are treated and recorded 
as you know R&B and soul music and that's that's why it works so beautifully and that's why this I think for mo- for so many people is the kind of quintessential collection of Albert King recordings yeah Wayne what did we miss on the history of uh, of this record now none now we've got it all <laughs> okay one other thing that I did want to make mention um, so he Albert is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Was inducted in 2013, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wayne, I know we talk about the Rolling Stone greatest albums of all time. This was on the list in 2012. It was ranked number 491. Unfortunately, in the 2020 list, it's no longer there. So, no longer on the list. But it's on my list. It's on Ron's list. <laughs> and that's the only list that matters for today. Yeah, I was going to say, right. at least today, that's the only list that matters. <laughs> All right, so um, let's, let's, let's do the track-by-track uh, track analysis. So as a reminder, our scoring is based on number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this Eleven. Record? Oh, you're jumping right to it. All right, it means our top song is going to get 11 points. Next favorite, 10. On down to lowest score of one. And this album goes pretty quick. So you get 11 songs in 34 minutes. So here we go. Title track, Born Under a Bad Sign. It's first up. What, what do we know about, Ron, you seem to know a lot about the history of this, so what's the history on this song? Well, first of all, like, this is, like, the song. Like, you could talk about, uh, basically everything that's good about this record is distilled into this song. Like, first of all, um, the two guitar attack thing in this, you know, like, when you listen to this recording, Cropper's playing... The, the riff, you know, he's playing a riff, he's staying out of the way, he's not doing any tricks, he's like, but he's absolutely integral, and you could almost just sit back and listen to the riff, and like, follow along with that, it's like one of those, um, you know, we talked about Jimmy Reed, it's like, that stuff, Keith Richards, that, that brand of where you're like, well, you're, I guess you're the rhythm guitar player, but you're not always like, strumming chords, you know, he's like, He's playing a, yeah. a, what is essentially a lead line that drives the song. So it's got Cropper being Cropper. It's got Albert King doing the quintessential Albert King thing, the, 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 the licks that are, you know, there's only like, you know, eight licks, and then they're like broken down and, and amended slightly on, you know, on this whole album. And so this record is like a beautiful, a beautiful distillation of like what he does. The horns are murdering. The piano is like, per- this is exactly, it's, it's, it's Duck and Al, the rhythm section does the whole thing. It's, this for me is obviously far and away, like if I could have given this 22 points, I would, like this is, <laughs> this is better than every other song on this record by a, a hundred miles. Uh, I love the song. And um, 
so this is a William William Bell. I don't, you know, this is one of those things because uh, like I don't sometimes at um, at stacks like I don't know how the the co writing stuff works. It's like you know, like if Dave Porter is writing a song and Isaac Hayes like goes to the bathroom, they like don't give him a credit. But if he says something from the bathroom, they do give him a credit. Like some of their some of their crediting is interesting. So this is a. Uh, this is a William Bell song, who is a yeah. you know is a is a songwriter there and involved with lots of you know he's involved with lots of things. And this is kind of the one that he is uh, most well known for. But um, and Booker T has a has a credit, but he's you know he and Steve are like largely producing the record, even though they don't get the producing credit. Um, that's like a, that's one of those. Uh, it is known. <laughs> So 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 he has the songwriting credit I know um but he uh yeah I don't I don't know like what his involvement is like but the song also to me like I love the universality of of this it's like I don't know what it is uh to be like you know a an, like a six foot four, six foot seven, like large built man uh, who's born a, a black child in, you know, in, in Mississippi or Arkansas or wherever he actually is from and, and tells the, all the, the, the story he tells about himself, the life he actually led. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like to walk in those, uh, you know, in, in that path. Like, I don't, I don't know what that life was like. But as a kid, when I heard this, it felt like, Everybody knows what it's like to feel uh, down, you know, to feel hurt, to feel like you were born to lose. And that to me is like what makes this song it's, itself so special, like uh, is even though I, you know, like he's like, I prob- I, like something like 60 years older than me and lived in a world completely different than my own, I, Im- this immediately resonated with me. And the fact that, like, the, you know, he's a great interpreter of song as well. You know, I think that that's like, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, this person doesn't write their songs. And it's like, I didn't care that Albert King didn't write this song. He didn't, he didn't write most, you know, he's not a songwriter, really. He didn't write most of his songs. He's not like, that's not, you know, I, I'd imagine he would never even have spoken of himself as a, as a songwriter. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm a guitar player I'm a singer and so like that's another thing to me is like he interprets this song so beautifully and it feels like his own it's like once Aretha sang Respect that's Aretha's song it doesn't matter that Otis Redding wrote that song like that's an Aretha Franklin song Aretha Aretha owned that you can't I can say that about a number of Linda Ronstadt songs as well you know Bonnie Raitt Bonnie Raitt does Angel from Montgomery and you're like Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's a Bonnie Raitt. I mean, and I and I bet that John Prine would would have said the same thing. You know, <laughs> like he's like, once you hear her do it, it's like I don't know who else is going to do that now. <laughs> right. Like, right. Exactly. And so yeah, I, yeah, to me, this is just like I love it. it I t- like I think some of the others, you know, his other albums, other times in his career, he did stuff that are are there. That's like cool, you know. And I think there are other places on this album as well that are like really cool. But this song to me. It just like it captivated me. I've listened to this song more than any of the other songs on the album. I love everything about the recording. I love everything about it. So this one for me is an 11 out of 11. It's my number one without question. Absolutely. Wayne, what do you got on this one? Oh, this is his signature song. Absolutely. Um, and I can say it's an electric blues song, but it still has those kind of Delta blues themes mm-hmm. in it of, you know, bad luck. Uh, yeah. everything you know I love the line uh, 
what is it? I know wine and women is all I crave. And at the end, that, that's what's going to put him in his grave. But it's a classic blues song. And like you're saying, the horns are used great. They're kind of subtle. Um, yeah, and Steve Cropper, that that guitar riff that drives it along. And then those flourishes by Albert King. It's uh, this. Yeah, this is my favorite song of this record, too. Uh, far and away. Yeah. And uh, and I'll jump in here. This is my 11 as well. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've had a unanimous top song. We did it. We did it. Yeah. It's been six months. Wow. Last time was. What do you think the last time was, Wayne? Oh, uh, I got nothing. Lover, you should have come over by Jeff Buck. Oh, that's a good one. Ah. That was that was our last unanimous unanimous pick. All right. Uh, next song is Crosscut Song. So, Ron, you've already touched on how lyrically some of these are not super strong, but it's the vibe that goes along with it that just turns it into going, yeah, okay, we're, I'm cool with this. Yeah, like, you know, Robert Johnson, if today was Christmas Eve and tomorrow would be Christmas Day, it's like, that's not, like, he could have said almost anything there. It's like, there's an energy, um, I would say, you know, and that's... So Crosscut saw, um, uh, you know, is for me, um, that is all, that is actually also my second favorite song on the album. I I also think that the first side of this album is far superior to the second side, which happens a lot. Um, and, uh, but this to me, number two is Crosscut saw. Um, so that gets 10 points from me and it's got that rumba kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's very, very, uh, uh, very very nasty. Uh, so when I was uh, when I was when I first got to college, um, I went to a jam and I was like, growing up I would you know just go to jams and I bring a guitar you know I get called up and I would play and sometimes you know I you know when I was young it's like sometimes you can hang and sometimes you get your head cut off, but uh, I was used to going uh, you know especially because of a lot of the music that I liked um, was like music like the artists that were making it were black artists that were much older than me. And so I was going to, like the jams that I was going to were primarily in places where I would be playing with black artists. So I got to college um, and I when I went to a jam, I found a neighborhood that had a jam where they were playing the kind of music that I was into. And so I went with a Les Paul in my hand, you know, Les Paul, a case for my Les Paul carrying in my hand. And I had drumsticks in my back pocket, which I was taking everywhere with me at that time. I was getting into playing drums. I was not very good, but I spent, I don't know, a year or two years playing drums with a lot of my time. So I go to this jam and there's, you know, like 50 guitar players, like there are at every jam. Um, And there's one guy who's playing drums and I walk in and, you know, there's like almost everybody that's, you know, in the place is on the, is on the stage, uh, you know? And so I walk in and, uh, 
you know, I go to like sign up and the guy sees that I have drumsticks in my pocket and he goes, you want to play drums? And I was like, not really. Um, I was like, uh, I didn't, you know, I just like carried them, you know, it was just like a thing I did. And so, but I didn't know I got up and I played a shuffle, you know, on something and it was fine. And then somebody said, all right, give me a rumba groove. And I was like, oh, what now? Uh, you want me to play? I, I, I can't, I can't do that. And they were like, you know, like kind of the, the, the Cuban kind of the, the cross cut saw, you know, and the man who's saying this to me is, is a, is a big man, uh, older, like, like older, like as old as my grandpa probably at that point. And he got his guitar strapped on and he like, once I like, you know, kind of shrug, like I can't, I can't play that on the drums. He says, Leroy. And his, and his brother, Leroy, stands up and he says, what? And he says, wake daddy up. So next to this old man's brother, who's also an old man, is an older man who is their father. So they poke the old man who is asleep in a booth. And he's like rail thin and like very old and seems like he might be blind because they got to guide him up there. It's a, it's a whole thing. So I'm sitting there like with my mouth open, like what is about to happen? Oh my goodness. So I get up and I move and they, they situate this old, like crumpled up old man, like in the, in the, on the drum throne. And he's like, you know, kind of got like, he's shaking a little bit. I was like, whoa, this is wild. And then and I'm not kidding, this is real, this all happened to me. He takes batting gloves out of his pocket, puts on batting gloves on, on both of his hands, and then takes out these giant tree trunk sticks, like marching band sticks, like big, thick, and he just drops the beat, he leans in, it's like he just came back to life. It was like he was dead in the corner. And then the groove gets dropped and he is alive again. And he dropped it and I was like, Oh man, I just like, you know, went to the side, picked up my guitar, plugged it in. I was like, this I know how to do, okay. <laughs> I couldn't do it with the drums. And so now I'm playing with like, you know, three generations of this family where like this old man, it's like he could have died on the walk to the stage. Um, but yeah, I didn't know how to play that groove. Um, but that to me, the groove is the, you know, is the thing. You just, you jump on that train with Al and Duck and they're just, mm. They're just taking you there, and it's it feels it feels just just right. It's uh, everything. So to me, Crosscut saw again. It's like kind of I mean you know it's it's a, it's a little like silly you know as as some blues tunes can be, but it just feels so good. Mm, I love that one. So for me, that's that's my number ten. All right, Wayne. Anything on Crosscut saw? I don't know how you top Ron's story I, right yeah, there. Yeah, you can't. But I'm just gonna. I'll just say what I have written down here. Uh, yeah, I I noticed that Latin beat right off. I think that is probably the most interesting part about it. I mean, sexual euphemism in a blues song. All uh, over. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing extraordinary. Um, I guess for me, this him being a guitar player and that really being big. I think the horns sometimes drown out the guitar. And then his, he's got these hush vocals. I'm used to that big, you know, that voice we just heard on Born with a Bad Sign. Um, so I gave it a three. Okay. All right. This is my seven. Uh, one, one thing that I didn't note um, earlier, the Born Under a Bad Sign. So it was a moderate hit for, for Albert. Hit number 49 on the R&B chart. But this one, Crosscut, Crosscut Saw Blues, was 
a bigger hit for him, reached number 34 on their R&B. And he re-recorded this multiple times yeah, over he, his career. This became almost his signature song. Yeah, he reimagined this a bunch of ways, too. That's kind of like yeah. a another thing that's fun about this, if you follow him through his career, is like they played it like without this groove. They did it other ways. Like I said, he had a funk period. He's an interesting guy. I think he gets pigeonholed, but he, he did a lot of cool things, actually. Yeah. All right. Next song, Kansas City. I'll be standing on the corner of 12th Street and Vine. With my Kansas City baby and a bottle of Kansas City wine. Well, I may take a plane, I may take a train, but if I have to walk, I'm going just the same. I'm going to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. So for me, this is actually this is this is the third song on the album. It's my number nine. Um, I it's, <laughs> starting to see a trend. The front the front side of this record is the side A is 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 you know very good uh, in comparison to the rest of the record, especially. I mean, and this is like it's one of the great blues standards. Um, you know, and so that's it's a good song. It's a good arrangement. Like this is one that like. There's just nothing wrong with it. You know, for this kind of an album, it's like, it, it, it feels like it makes sense here. Um, and I think that like, because some of the songs are so lacking uh, for me, I like that they chose a standard like this and put it in there um, and gave it, a, gave it a whirl. And so that's why this is my third favorite song on the album. So that's a nine for me. And there's a lot of versions of this out there. Oh, this, yeah. Um, and I got to say, this might be my favorite version oh, of the song. There you go. Yeah. Uh, this, and I, I've heard a Fats Domino version that's probably close, but this yeah. is probably my fa- I mean, this is this song's part of the foundation of rock and roll. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, For I've sure. heard the Beatles record. I've heard Little Richard's version. Uh, but, yeah, this one I would say... It, his vocals are just so smooth. It sounds a lot different than the Wilbert Harrison uh, one that, that's made famous. He's just got, there's just something smooth in his voice. Yeah. Yeah, I love the bass line and the horns on this. That That's what makes this my favorite version of this song. And there's, like, if you if you just look up Kansas City and Spotify, there's like 200 instances of of this song out there. So... Um, there's no shortage of, of, of songs on this. Um, this is my 10. Wayne, your score? This is also my 10. Just spoiler alert, Ron, you already mentioned um, how good the first half is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our top five songs are on side A, just so you know. Yeah. All right. All right, next song, Oh Pretty Woman. Oh, pretty woman, what you trying to do? You kept on fooling around. And that's not to be confused with the Roy, Roy Orbison, Orbison song, yeah, or the Van Halen cover of that song. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, for me, 
this is my number seven. So this is the first time I've deviated from the uh, the order that they go in on the album um, for points. <laughs> I just think his guitar playing is really like muscular in this, and um, you know, I think also. Uh, one, so like I said, there's a, a few things that Cropper does that are really, really uh, good, and they're like fundamental things that uh, you can do as a guitar player within an ensemble that really work. And one of them is leaning into the bass line a lot and like largely doubling the bass line. And so Steve Cropper is doing a lot of that on this recording, and it just makes the bass line feel that much more central and that much more uh, driving. And so to me, I mean, there's so much good in the playing on, on this album. I mean, everybody in the room, you know, Stax is like, even though in, in practice, I'm sure many of the people, you know, like are big ego uh, people because they did a lot of giant stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure how they feel about themselves notwithstanding. I think that this is like egoless playing, basically. It's just like everybody's like leaning in and driving the song. And that's like, that's something that I really love about this. Um, so that's why this is my, uh, this one gets seven points for me. Do you think it's that it's, a, there is no ego in the room? Or do you think that it is everybody in the room knows that the other players are on the top of their game, so they've got to step it up. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, um, like the band. I think the band is an example of this as well. It's like when you take a bunch of people who can really, really, really play, and then you put them yeah. together, and everybody comes in with an understanding that all you're going to do is serve the songs and nothing more, and everybody buys into that, like that's how you make great records. And it's why, like, People who go to jazz school or people who love, you know, that, like, what, that, like, those people are excited about Snarky Puppy, but, like, lots of people like Born Under a Bad Sign. You know, it's, I, I think that's, like, the difference. It's, like, you don't need, like, you don't have to be educated in music in some way to understand why this music is good. And it's just because it's, like, it just sounds like a bunch of people playing a song and I mean, it's also why this music is, like I said, hard to play because it is, it's deceptive. Like you have to learn to do this. Like the, this bass playing, like in, on many of these songs, like the way that the, the rhythm section is locked together and then the piano parts that, that are, you know, tied into the rhythm section or the guitar parts that are tied, like that stuff is hard to do. That's, that's very hard if you're laying back on the back end of the beat like that to get everybody to play together. Like this is... This is music for like adult players. This is not for it's your first day. This is real heavy stuff. And like I think a lot of people, it's a very in my mind, it's a very immature notion to think that like you have to show off to do something good. It's like this is I think about like Booker T and the MGs and the Memphis Horns, like the you know the, the this group of people playing on these records, like it doesn't get any better than this. Like. You know, like, yeah. why why is Clarence Clemens the most heard saxophone player in the history of the world? Well, that's easy, because he played on great songs. Like, that, you know, so it's like, you yeah. get into a great song, and you do your job, and you serve the song, and that's it. And I just think, like, as a musician, it's, it's easy to get lost in, like, I'll show you, you know? <laughs> like, these guys are just, they're just playing the songs. And I also think that, like, to survive within this unit, you had to understand that that was what you were doing. You know, like you had to 
play the songs, serve the songs, or otherwise you weren't going to survive as, as a member of this group. Yeah, for sure. Wayne, any last thoughts on Pre- Oh Pretty Woman? Oh, Steve Cropper is the is the star, is the hero on this. Um, this is my favorite solo of on the record. And then I like the way the horns and the guitar do this almost call and response thing, or one you know the back and forth with that. And this is a, I lyrically I also love this because he's warning her. She had her she has little to no care for him at all, but yet he's still warning her like if you keep this up. If you keep ignoring me and you keep treating me bad, one day, one day you'll you're gonna see. I just love that. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. What was your score on this one? A nine. Ron, what was your score again? Seven. That's right. And this is my six. All right. Uh, next song is "Down." Don't bother me. And that is my number six. All right. So first first of two songwriting credits on the album that is credited to Albert King. Because mm-hmm. uh, most of the other songs that we've talked about have were you know either staples or somebody else wrote those. Um, and this is the is this the only one that he is the sole yeah. songwriter? Yeah, I think this. Yeah, one that's is. that's I, I I have that also. Uh, to say it's like it's interesting you know um, when you're playing in standard forms you know that it, uh, like how one comes to be the the songwriter of note on something and so I wonder like is this something he had, he had heard before or did, you know somewhere along his as his way or did he make this up like I you know it's like an, a different the the version of songwriting like what what songwriting means uh is is somewhat different i guess when you're working in a a, a standard form like this so i wonder about that i'm curious i i wish i could yeah. i wish i could ask him um and uh this is another one where like uh so we were talking about the some of the imbalances in the mix on this album um this is an example of it seems like that they took Whatever fader the horns were on, and whatever fader the bass were on, was on on, other, on almost every other song, and they just switched them. So the horns, mm-hmm. which are generally fairly prominent on these recordings, are tucked way, way back, and Duck's right. bass is like way, way out in front, um, like or just more so than any other of the recordings. And I think it's like it's neat <laughs> because you know it, it, this is another one where it really. Uh, it's another opportunity for the bass to really drive the song, even though he's not like doing anything crazy. He's, you know, it's just like a good kind of, you know, muscular sort of bass line. Um, uh, yeah, but that, that's something that I've always found interesting about this particular recording on this album is just like, it does feel as if like they took the horns and they were just like, mm, let's just, let's just see what happens if we just, and then they swap the horns with the bass. And now the horns are very quiet and tucked and the bass is very loud. So, so yeah. So for me, this one's a six. Gotcha. Wayne, what do you got on this one? Uh, I gave it an eight. I really like to say there's there's some shuffle to the piano. It just pushes that 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 blues feel even further. Yeah. All right. This is my five. Uh, also, shortest song on the album at two minutes and eleven seconds. So, 
I don't know what that means, but all right. <laughs> Next song is The Hunter. So this is one of the ones that gets into the this is not a this is not a like Dave Dave Porter and Isaac Hayes are in the in the, not just in the building but in the room and somehow we ended up recording this song um, like I don't I really don't like the the song itself but the recording is wonderful like uh, the the way that the second like the cropper guitar part is locked in with the piano. It's just like helping to drive the band. It's this rhythmic thing. And it's sort of like um, uh, like on the verse of Hold On, I'm Coming, like what he's playing. Um, and like after the like the beginning of Soul Man, after he plays that boom, well, God, plays the lick. Like after that, he's like got this kind of like strummy drive the band, you know, thing. Like it, it, one of the things that's cool about these recordings, it's like while there is a horn section on these um Cropper, like a lot of what he highlights is like uh, as a guitar player, you can uh, you can take the place sometimes of the horn section. Uh, yeah, a lot of what he does uh, represents you know represents some of that. Like sometimes he's playing like he's a part of the horn section. Sometimes he's playing like he's a part of the rhythm section. Um, and he's uh, I mean he's just masterful. He's like masterful at, at playing songs and participating in this ensemble. So he's like since there is a horn section, what he's doing is he's picking things to highlight. Like if he wants to help drive the rhythm, he's playing he's got a strummy little thing, and that's what's happening on this song. Um, and if he wants to highlight the bass line, he's doubling the bass line. And if he, you know, he doesn't do a lot of his like sixthy, you know, cropperisms like like the beginning of Soul Man. Like when people imagine Steve Cropper, they often imagine that. He doesn't do a lot of that on this album. Um, and I think it's because Albert King is largely play, like largely is only playing on the three highest strings of the guitar. That's like part of his shtick. And um, so Steve is not playing as much stuff in the higher register of his guitar. And most of those, you know, like cropper isms that you, you think of, like the beginning of Soul Man, most of those are on the three highest strings of your guitar. And so I think that's probably why. It's like, it's all very calculated. It sounds simple. You know, he's like, you know, you hear it, and you're like, oh, he's kind of strumming some chords here. But it, it's just like, it's all so smart. It's so like he's making they're all making choices and so i really like this recording even though i don't like love um the song and so i give it a two but like if i was just choosing on the the recording i might i it would go higher because the recording is rad um but this song is is not my favorite so the song is this is a two for me gotcha wayne um when i'm looking at the lyrics of of this one because i've got you in the sights of my love gun Wayne, did you immediately think of Kiss? Of course. Okay. I'm 52 years old. All right. I wanted I to make sure that you uh, were thinking of Kiss. But I, and this one was in, initially lower because, like you said, uh, the references to Love Gun, it has all the, the these kind of almost corny blues sexual innuendo in it. But this one has a groove like nothing else on the record. And that 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 
pounding piano part. Um, I just like say the vocally, it's all this bravado, but he has there's there's a there's a sincerity to it also that I think is unique. All right, Wayne, for your score, pull the trigger. <laughs> Seven. Uh, Ron, what was your score again? Um, what did I say? My score was a two. This is my nine. I like this song. I like the feel of it. Um, maybe because I also know that um, I know the I Can Tina Turner version. Mm-hmm. That was a hit, like in, I don't know, 1969 or something like that. So, um, all right, next song. It's time for us to flip the record over. This is uh, I Almost Lost My Mind. So, for me, um, the ballads are definitely the worst part of this. Agreed. But it's because what I come here for is not that. Like, I didn't show up for Albert King to hear him, like, coo a ballad at me. Like, I want to break that flute over my knee. But, but, if you imagine this in the setting, like, you know the album, B.B. King's Live at the Regal, like, B.B.'s live album? Uh, it's been a while since I've listened to it. So on the BB King live at the Regal album, the reason that I, I bring it up. Uh, so I used to listen to this before I went out on stage when I was really like going out like a gunslinger and like really trying to like indoctrinate everyone into the blues on, you know, when they came for me to the exact inverse, when they came to hear me play ballads, I was like, well, first here's a 12 minute slow blues in E you're welcome. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I would like get backstage and I would listen to Live at the Regal just like to get myself pumped up. And the reason was on that album, it's BB playing live and it's just like, there's just like young people, women in the audience losing their minds, screaming at him. The whole thing feels like very like sexual. It's like early, you know, Sinatra or, or Elvis or the Beatles with just like young women, like dying in their seats and screaming and like falling all over themselves. And so it makes you kind of remember that like the guitar can be sexy when used. Right. And so when I imagine Albert King playing this song for other people, like I can see how other people could come to him just like in that setting, you know, if you, if you place it in BB King's live at the Regal with that audience, I'm like, I get it. You know, you're trying to sing a ballad. It's not for me, but I, I, I can imagine who it's for. It's just not for me. So for me, I don't love the song. Um, I really hate the flute. The flute is just the worst to me, but it reminds me of Chicago's color. My world. Oh, yuck. Right. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so for me, this is, I really don't like, a lot of it, but I understand its purpose within the collection. And so I give it a five, even though I don't love it. I also wonder, so I'm with you because I thought that, okay, you have all these really great songs to to start out with, real rock and songs, and then you flip the record over and this is your first song on side B. Is it because it was a a standard, um, Ivory Joe Hunter this was a number one song for him back in the fifties, you know, and Pat Boone makes this a number one song 
um, when he covers it, what, in 56, I think it was. Um, was it just because he threw this on because this was a known song in that time period? I wonder. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Wayne, anything on I Almost Lost My Mind? Yeah, it's it's missing those those little lead flourishes that he does. I mean, there's there's only, I, there's the guitar is almost it feels like it's non-existent until that solo towards the towards the end of the middle, um, and that's like I say that's it's what you come to the party for. You can't yeah re- removing it was it was it was noticeable and tragic. <laughs> Your score <laughs> uh, one. All right, mine is also a one. And what was yours again, Ron? Uh, five. Five. All right. Next song, Personal Manager. Yeah, I want to be a milkman every morning. Your ice cream man when the day is I want to be with you, baby. Personal manager for me is a four. I'm going to give that one a four. There are parts of it that I like. Again, this is another one where I'm like not crazy about the 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 song itself necessarily, but the arrangement feels really good. And I just imagine like Al Jackson and and Duck just like leaning back with their eyes closed, just like everybody hold on. Whew. Like it is just that's slow it's simmering it's funky it's just na- that's that's nasty like you can't again it's one of those it is deceptively very 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 challenging even though it sounds pretty simple like this is it's mm, i love i love the way it's played like they could you know they could be playing twinkle twinkle little star to this groove and i would be like mhm okay mhm yeah I got it. Um, So yeah, while I don't love the song, I really love what the rhythm section is doing and the piano as well. And I also really like those guitar hits right at the top before the licks. I think those are, those are cool too. Um, So I give it a four, but I really, I do like the arrangement. I think the arrangement is great. And this is what I would say is the most jam bandy of the songs Mm -hmm. on the record. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it's because of the length. This is the longest song on the record at Mm -hmm. four, four minutes, 29 seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I wanted to give a lower score based on the lyrics, but this this has probably my favorite guitar solo. Mm-hmm. So I bumped it up on the scores just because of that. Um, and oh, by the way, this is this is co- uh, co-writing credits to Albert King with David Porter mm-hmm. for this particular song. And now, just imagine if they had just had Isaac Isaac Hayes come in and write the song with <laughs> Dave Porter, it would have been fine. We would ended up with a great song, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, Wayne. Wayne, anything on personal manager? Yeah, I, I like. I say, I like it. It's got that. It's got sexy. It's got this slowed down pace, um, and and a great solo. Like I say, uh, that's that stands out. And then, I, the lyrics. It's like I say, he could have gone. It could have gotten way out of control with all the references to to the things a personal manager would do. Um, so he, I, I don't have too much of a problem with it. But like I say, and he did reference the ice cream man, which. That's what that's a that's on a blue standard. Stop me when I'm passing by. All right. Um, this is my eight. Ron, what was your score again? Four. Wayne. A five. All right. Laundromat Blues is next. You've been 
at the local laundromat. I say you've been meeting your man, babe. Down at the local laundromat. I done got wide And that ain't going for them So, I give this one a three. Um, I, uh, I, it's another one of the songs where I'm like, you know, I don't love the song. I think the recording is good. I just like, there's nothing about it that I'm like really excited about. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's a three. There's just like, it doesn't, there's nothing about it that grabs me. Um, so uh, that one, that's one of those ones I never particularly loved. Wayne, anything on Laundromat Blues? I, I agree. I mean, it's a classic. It's got a classic blues sound. I, I think the lyrics are funny. Uh, if you keep screwing that guy at the laundromat, eventually I'm going to do something about it. I'm telling you right now. It's like, if you don't, if you don't stop with this constant going yeah. to the laundromat and yeah. cheating on me, I'm certainly, uh, you know, yeah. I'm going to eventually become upset. <laughs> yeah. If you keep, yeah. Yeah. And the songwriting credits is Sandy Jones Jr., who was, um, he was a blues man for Stacks. I meant to do some more research on Sandy Jones Jr. and forgot to. Um, all right. This is my two. Wayne? A four. Ron, what was yours again? Uh, three. Okay. Next song is As the Years Go Passing By. No, that's one thing you can't deny And so for me, of the ballads, this is probably like I guess the best one. I like that the horns and Booker T like are like are allowed to carry. I I I assume that Booker T is playing piano on everything, even though like I know Isaac Hayes does have credits because it just sounds like I don't I can't hear. It's, it feels like Booker. Yeah, I can't hear where it's not yeah. him, and so I don't know if maybe like Isaac Hayes is playing uh, playing you know organ or something or you know playing some key- other keyboard parts but I in like in knowing you know this music very intimately and, and knowing the recordings that these guys have played on like you know kind of better than I know I guess probably anything um, I, I can't really tell when it's when it's not him it sounds like him a lot so anyway I think that like the to me the most surprising thing about this is that like the Albert King, like playing the Albert King licks, you know, doing doing that. I think that, like in my head, like if you if you explained this to me, like put it on paper, I would think that that would ruin this song. But it actually works really well in this context. And so, of all the ballads, this is the one that I think is the um, the strongest. So I give it an eight, actually. Wow. All right. I think if there's one song on the album that kind of invokes the darkly lit blues clubs of like the sixties that maybe you might see in a, um, Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like this would be it. Maybe, maybe this was in a Scorsese movie and I just didn't know. It. <laughs> um, 
wane anything on as the years go passing by? Yeah, I I agree with Ron. Of of the ones, because there's three songs I feel like that kind of get out of that blues, Mm -hmm. you know, characteristics, and and the the other two are my lowest scores. This one, it's it's got the piano gives it like this jazzy feeling, but not not too much. They still have like say those little flourishes that Albert King does at the end of a at the end of a phrase that keeps it true. Um, and his voice, like I say, it's just so soaked in heartbreak. Um, but that piano behind the guitar solo, it just, like I say, great. This of, the, of those ones, this was my favorite. Yeah. All right. Your score? Six. Ron, what was your score again? Eight. All right. This is my four, and I'm rethinking it. Um, all right. Last song. The Very Thought of You. I think that I've mentioned enough times, uh, probably, that, that you, you would guess that I don't come here for the ballads. Um, this, <laughs> this, this recording specifically, so this is the ballad that I like the least. It feels to me like, like if I ordered a pizza and they delivered me lamb vindaloo. I'm like, I, I mean, this is good. It's just not what I wanted. You know, I, like, I'm sure somebody else wanted this. I just, I asked for a pizza, and I sort of feel like that. I just, like... I don't know. This is like schmaltzy, like jazz, big band, like uh, you know, like it, like I didn't come here for for Dean Martin. Like Dean Martin has a, has a time and a place, and I'll put it, I'll put on my apron, and I'll put it on, and you know, and we'll have a nice night, and I'll and I'll, I'll make some some veal cutlets. But this is not what I'm here for. And so for me, this feels so incongruous. It's like uh, I don't. I don't come here for this. I don't want it. It's the. I think it's the worst song on the record. I don't really like the recording. Uh, so I give it a one. I wish they would have left it off um, or just cut literally anything else. Uh, <laughs> right. So I really don't like this one. But I under, again, I understand the idea. It's like they're trying to figure out, you know, when you think about it in the context of he hasn't had any real success and they're trying to figure out how do we make people pay attention to him. So like, I think you have to try some of these ballads. Like if you're the, you know, I've been loving you too long, you know, like, all, like if you're the, those people, you got to think, okay, maybe, maybe we need some ballads to make this work, you know, like, yeah. so I, I get the, the idea. And like, you know, if you're in, you know, if you're whoever's, I don't know who's doing the A&R and choosing the songs, if it's Jim Stewart or if it's, you know, you know, if it's Cropper or, 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 or who, Booker T or whatever, but whoever's, you know, figuring out what songs go on the record, I, I, under, I can see the logic behind it. I understand it. It's just like, it doesn't resonate with me. So this one gets a one for me. I apparently like Lamb Vindaloo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and for many of the same things that you just said was taking a chance, doing something a little bit different, yeah, he didn't have a hit at this point, so let's throw a couple things out there instead of just throwing, you know, all these crazy blues licks. 
definitely not my favorite song on the record either. This gets my three because like my comments were when you have some really great guitarists and you don't highlight guitar work. There's a saxophone solo instead of a guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Right. That And that's great. And I liked it. But I guess I'm a little confused why you don't focus on the guitar work. But again, I gave it a three just because I'm like, you're doing something a little bit different. I'll give you a little cred for that. But overall, yeah, not my favorite song either. Wayne, anything on this one? Yeah, my notes, I say, like, just to echo Ron, it says very soulful, but I guess I came here for the blues. It's just, I, I as a song, I don't have a terrible problem with it. Um, but yeah, it's it's got no, it's got a sax solo instead of a guitar solo mm-hmm. in a, in yeah. a, you know, on a blues record. And, and and again, going back to what I was talking about with I Almost Lost My Mind, I feel like they probably pulled this one out because of the notoriety. This was dating back to 1934. This was um, a pop standard that was recorded by Ray Noble and his orchestra. Um, there were a number of other people who have who had done this song, including Ricky Nelson. Um, who who did it? Who did it right around that same time? And that's another thing that I think maybe contemporary music fans like when thinking about stuff like this, like maybe don't realize it's like, you know, when you when you're talking about like uh like Tin Pan Alley era and things like that, it's like, you know, like Sinatra would cut a song, and if it was a hit, like six other people would cut a song, and you know, if Dean Martin had a hit right. with a song, six other people would cut that song, and they were doing it in this, you know, in the same month. Like if the, if the, if the song came out and it was a hit, so the idea of trying to pick a song to be a hit based on its track record of being a hit before, like that was absolutely normal, um, you know, for 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 a long, long, long time. Like it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't weird. It, you know, that's that's that was the norm. In fact, for people who were not writing their own songs, which was almost everyone for you know for a long, long time. Doesn't happen these days. No, it doesn't. Like we're. Like, we're not going to get a big band version of WAP, right? <laughs> we're just it's oh, not going to happen. All right. Um, all right. Did we get scores? Uh, Ron, you one. said lowest score. That's a one for me. Wayne? Two. And this was my three. So um, this was the lowest score on the record. All right. Um this is where I say, did we cover everything? Did I miss anything? Did we miss anything? I think we did it. I think yeah. we got it. I think we got it. We covered it. Any guesses on number one? Kidding. Nope. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, yeah, that's that's a unanimous born under a bad sign. Hmm. Uh, definitely was our uh, cumulative unanimous. That gets our 11. Uh, how about guesses for number two? Uh, is it Crosscut Saw? That gets our four. Pretty Woman. Hmm. Yeah, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne dropped that down hmm. for us. Um, so Kansas City, average score of 9.66. That's number two. Number three, Oh Pretty Woman, average score of 7.33. We've got Crosscut Saw was our fourth at 6.66. And rounding out the top five, not a surprise, another song off of side A. Uh, down don't bother me average score of 6.33 that was uh, that was our fifth um just outside of the top top uh top five the hunter and as the years go passing by but uh that's still a solid top five yeah. is it not oh yeah it's great yeah, there's I'd some great recordings 
All right. Ron, thanks a ton for ah, choosing this. This was this a lot was of great. Fun. This was great. Like I like I said, I was expecting I don't know, I was expecting maybe a, a Springsteen record, so picking something that was a little a little, uh, little different. Ne- near and dear to my heart. So I'm glad that we got to talk about Albert King. Now everybody who doesn't know about this record, you go and dive in and it will take the top of your head off. Yeah. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right. Last question. I lift this uh, from a fellow podcaster here in Orlando who does the Scotch and Good Conversation podcast. So he asks all of his guests, who do you know that I don't know that should join us on this podcast? It seems like you... To revisit one of their It seems records. like you know all of my friends. It's kind of <laughs> weird, honestly. Um, have you had Emily Scott Robinson on here yet? We have not. Well, Emily is very, uh, like, has a diverse influences as well and is, uh, is, is great to talk to. So, I, although you know that she, that she exists, you we haven't do. had her as a guest. So, Emily no, Scott Robinson. Okay. And I think she's recording. If I, I do follow her on Instagram, I think it is. Yeah, so. she's, she's working on a new album uh, as we speak, I believe. Very cool. All right. Um, so, tell people where they can find all the happenings of Ron Pope. I'm all over the place. I'm in the internet. Wherever you go... I'm in that. I'm in there. I'm in the. I'm on the Instagrams. I'm on the Twitter, uh, Facebooks, all of them. I'm in all of it. I'm on the YouTubes. So if you uh, if you look for Ron Pope, you're going to find me. There's also a real estate agent. That's not me. I'm not selling that's not, real estate. No, I'm, that's, that's I'm not. the music one. All right. Perfect. All right. As a reminder, you can find us on the socials as well. Just look for Records Revisited podcasts on Facebook, uh, on Twitter at podcast records and winning man's the instagram account at records revisited podcast and of course you can find us on all the major platforms where you can find quality podcasts and of course on all those platforms please go subscribe and rate or review us so thanks for listening please go support the arts i would tell you to go to live show but you know the drill on that so please find your favorites Uh, Go support them on their Instagrams and Instagram lives, YouTube lives, whatever they're doing. And uh, hopefully we get back out there real soon. Uh, Buy a t-shirt of the band, provided that they actually do have XL on their website. Uh, Buy a record. You can go visit a record store. Just mask up and be safe out there, all right? We are Records Revisited, and we are out. Out.